Hello, my name's David Cohen. I'm the London Bureau Chief for MyMac.com. This is a MyMac.com report from the UK for January 2006. So it's, Je- it's Monday, January 16th today, and Mac World Expo finished just at the end of last week, and I thought I'd share with you my view of the show here from the UK. I've only been an Apple user for about nine months, so I'd never seen a Mac World Expo before with having a vested interest as a Mac user. I found it a very interesting experience. Because of the time zone difference, I was able to finish work, sit down in front of my computer, and watch a blog of the keynote as it happened. Thanks to the Mac Rumors live site for that, that was the only one I found that was reliably producing updates for the whole of the keynote. Naturally, I'd been keeping up with all the rumors going around beforehand, so I was very interested to see which of the rumours would turn out to be true and which would turn out to be pure speculation on the behalf of Apple pundits. I found the keynote to be a little uneven in tone, which surprised me a little bit. Initially I thought it was because I was getting the keynote through a blog and maybe Steve was covering things that the blogger wasn't particularly interested in, but when I went back and looked at the QuickTime stream after the keynote had finished, uh, the same impression still came across to me. Particularly jarring was the failure to show any real updates to iWork 06. I'm a big fan of the iWork suite. Uh, I'm a big user of Pages myself, and I think it's a really good word processor. Having used Microsoft Word a fair bit, I think Pages actually knocked the socks off it in terms of presentation. So I was a little bit disappointed that there wasn't any demonstration of any new features, and the fact that the features that were mentioned were kind of mentioned as an aside. I know that there was a lot to get through in the keynote, but I really did feel that that iWork has been shortchanged both in development and presentation this year round. The new features in iLife certainly do attract me though. Uh, I'm a big photographer so I'm certainly keen to see the performance improvements in iPhoto and some of the interface changes sound interesting too. And the fact that they now have proper podcasting support in GarageBand is also a real interest to me. I currently use Soundtrack Pro to do my podcasting, but um, I've tried to use GarageBand and I've found that because it's so music focused and that's not really my uh, my natural area, um, I've struggled to use it effectively. But uh, what they've put in for a podcasting studio looks like it's just a ticket for a, a novice like me. But of course, it was the Intel hardware announcements that really made the big news. Now I've got to be honest, when I saw the blog come up that the first Intel Mac was going to be the iMac, which a lot of people hadn't really expected, I found a curious thought tickling my brain. Would Steve Jobs actually be bold enough to move the entire Macintosh line to Intel in one fell swoop at one single Macwell keynote? Well, not quite. But it's been interesting to note that since the uh, keynote presentation last week, there has been some speculation and some rumour going around that uh, Apple would have liked to have launched more products or some different product last week, but were restrained from doing so due to supply problems. So we'll see how that goes going forward. Certainly, with hindsight, the iMac is a good move for Apple going straight to Intel. As it's their biggest seller and it's a flagship machine, it sets a, a real line in the sand saying that they're definitely serious about doing this and that they don't see the Intel move as seriously impacting the uh, performance or software operation of the Macintosh line. And of course, the uh, move from PowerBook to the new MacBook dual processor Intel machine uh, also makes some sense, bearing in mind that it's uh, generally perceived that the lack of performance in uh, G4 PowerBooks has been one of the primary drivers towards moving to Intel in the first place. From a personal point of view, I was hoping for an iBook replacement, 
principally because I can't afford a MacBook Pro myself. They cost £1,400 in the UK, which is a bit too rich for me for a replacement laptop. I currently have a Windows laptop that I use for work that's provided by my employer, and I have an old G4 400MHz PowerBook that I use for my own personal use as a laptop. The PowerBook is fine, um, considering it's such an old machine, it actually is quite functional. But the problem I have is because I have to carry a Windows laptop for work, I can't take my PowerBook with me when I'm away from home, which I am a fair bit. For instance, this evening I'm sat in a hotel room in London recording this on my Windows laptop. I'd much rather be using a Macintosh most of the time, but most of my uh, business software needs to be running under a Windows environment, so I'm a little bit stuck there. Uh, obviously, my hope is that one day an Intel-based Mac laptop will be able to become my only machine and I can either run Windows as a separately booting system during the daytime at work, and then boot back into OS X in the evenings when I'm uh, not working, or alternatively be able to run Windows applications on the virtual PC or something like that from within OS X on an Intel machine. But my employer is committed to the Windows platform, so if I'm going to have to provide my own machine, uh, it's going to have to be a consumer-level device rather than a MacBook Pro. However, on the plus side, from my own point of view, it does give me a chance to sit back and see whatever teething problems that, uh, there are with the Intel machines come out before I'm committed to the platform myself. And obviously I also have to wait for Virtual PC or somebody solving the um, XP boot problem on the Intel machines. Uh, that's something which I'm sure we'll see over the next few weeks. But if you'll indulge me for a moment in a bit of post-Macworld punditry, I do believe that Apple will move very, very quickly to an all-Intel machine base, and I believe the uh, selection of the iMac as the first machine they've moved is a clear indication of that. I believe a rapid move would make sense. It would set a clear signal to all the developers that uh, this is a, a move that's here to stay and something that needs to be embraced rapidly. Some of the people who were at the Macworld Expo have expressed some reservations about Photoshop performance on the new machines and this will primarily be a problem of running older software like Photoshop under Rosetta rather than having a native universal code base. I'm sure that is a situation that Apple is keen to avoid, and one way to drive developers to get those universal binaries written and distributed to users is to move the entire machine base to Intel as quickly as possible. As such, it would not surprise me if Apple uses several special events over the next few months to launch replacements to the rest of their existing ranges to Intel machines. There's no technical reason why it can't be done now that they've got the platform out there, they've got OS X 10.44 for Intel out there, they've got applications moving over to Intel. And after all, these machines are basically just PCs on the inside, with a little bit of the Apple magic, of course. My view is that by the time the next Worldwide Developers Conference rolls around in summer this year, uh, the entire range will have already migrated completely to Intel, uh, which will be far more aggressive timescales than Steve Jobs originally gave to the developers at that conference last year. Of course, I could be completely wrong, but the good thing about being an Apple pundit, i found, is that it really doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong. If you're right, you get to take the kudos and the credit, and if you get it wrong, well, you can say, well, hey, nobody can predict what Apple does anyway. That's enough about the Expo now. Very few of us will have these new machines, so we're all stuck with using the existing Macintosh hardware we've got and getting the best out of those. And talking about that, I'd like to talk a little bit about digital photography. I've mentioned previously that I'm a keen digital photographer. 
Though strictly I'm a hobbyist, I'm not a professional by any stretch of the imagination, but I do enjoy it as a hobby. One of the things I've found when I've started taking up digital photography is the amount of post-processing you have to do on your images. Digital really gives you the opportunity to take as many pictures as you can to try and get the best ones. So if you're a poor photographer or somebody who's still learning, you can afford to make plenty of mistakes. But that creates a bit of a workflow problem for you. When you get home, you've got to upload all the pictures off your cards, get them onto your computer and sort them all out. If you don't do that, then you might as well have not bothered with taking the photos in the first place. It's a much bigger problem than it used to be when we had film cameras, because then when you came home, you got the films processed, you could immediately look through all the photos and very quickly put to one side the ones you didn't think were any good, leaving the rest in the album. With digital, it's a little bit different. You still have to do that process, but you can't do it as easily as just flipping through a set of photos. You need to upload the photos to your computer, sit down within iPhoto or another application, go through them, and of course for every photo which you think might not be up to the job, you have the chance of making some corrections that can improve it. I've been studying digital post-processing as part of my interest in photography, and one of the things my tutor has told me is the first thing you really need to do with any digital image is show it full screen, assess it, normally crop it a little, and then check the levels to make sure that they're uh, presenting the image as its best. Only then can you decide whether it's a good image that you want to keep or not. This becomes even worse if you generally shoot in RAW format. RAW is where you basically tell your camera not to post-process the image at all, but to give it to you as the uh, image sensor within the camera saw the image in the first place. The problem is, is that all images need to be th uh, adjusted, white balanced, sharpened, that sort of thing. So if you shoot in RAW, you get the opportunity to do that yourself. That means you normally get better images, but you do have to do that to each image before you can view it properly. This is the sort of problem that programs like iPhoto are intended to resolve. Now iPhoto is aimed at somebody who just uses their camera for taking general snaps, um, pictures of the family, family events, holidays, that sort of thing. And iPhoto does a pretty good job. It's certainly a uh, very strong program considering its relatively low price, or the fact that it comes free with most Macintoshes. And certainly it's a good reason to recommend a Macintosh to somebody who's looking for a new computer and has a digital camera. However, even with a tool like iPhoto, I've found that it takes a serious time commitment if you're generating a lot of images to sit down and go through them, put them into iPhoto, arrange them in some sort of folder structure, and then do all the image adjustments and whatever you, you want to do to your photos. The problem is even worse if you're using digital SLR, you've got very large images, you're shooting in RAW, and you're shooting a lot of photos that you actually depend on for your livelihood. And that is why Apple has launched Aperture, its photo workflow application. These sorts of applications are definitely the way photo management is going to go in the near future. And this is illustrated by the fact that Adobe has just launched Lightroom as a beta. Lightroom is a very similar program to Aperture in its design concept and approach. And it's been interesting to see how the program matures as Adobe finishes the beta program and actually launches it as a full product. The way these type of programs differ from iPhoto is they are very much focused on the workflow of photography. When Aperture was released, a lot of people suggested it might be a Photoshop killer, but nothing is further from the truth. 
it's really meant as a complementary program to Photoshop. Aperture is focused on very rapidly allowing you to get your images off your camera and your card into your computer and very, very quickly sort them, pick them, crop them, adjust them and get them to a, a level that you can present them. One of the key features of these sorts of programs is that any image edits you make to a, a photo are non-destructive. Effectively what they do is they pull the, pull the photo into a database and then just record what changes you make to the photo without actually physically changing the image. This allows the program to re-render the photograph using these changes at any time and as the edits you've made are not actually applied to the photo but are rendered onto it, that means you can make changes to the adjustments at any time after you've made the adjustments. As an example, take a crop. In iPhoto, if you crop a photo down, it will create a new copy of the image with the crop applied, and you can't go back unless you reload the original image. In a program like Aperture, if you make a crop and decide you don't like it, you decide it's too tight, or you've cut somebody's head off, if you bring the crop tool up again, you'll see the original image with the crop re-superimposed, and you can then just adjust the crop. It does that without actually creating any new images at all, so you're not consuming vast amounts of disk space every time you make a change like that. This is very, very different from iPhoto, and really the concept is very flexible. I've been chasing Apple for some time to try and get a copy of Aperture for review on the MyMac.com website, but unfortunately, to date, they have not been able to provide me one. Fortunately, I do know somebody who has a copy, and I've been able to sit down and spend a fair bit of time with the program, so I have a pretty good idea of how it works. It's very impressive. Uh, the interface in particular is very flexible, and that's what you want from a pro application. You don't want the application to dictate to people how they use it, you want the application to be flexible to work however they want. And certainly Aperture delivers in that regard. You can arrange photos exactly how you want. You can arrange all the controls on the screen in such a way that you can work on the photo without them uh, obscuring the screen, which is a real problem when you're trying to work on, f on photos in Photoshop. And certainly from the way I've used it so far, I've never been able to go through a set of photos so quickly, quickly identify which are the good ones, which are the bad ones, and then apply all my crops and edits in one fell swoop. And another key differentiator is it's much easier than in iPhoto to apply keywords to photos so that you can search for them on keywords. As your library of images grows beyond, say, a thousand photos, the option of just scrolling through the library looking at them to actually pick out the ones you want really doesn't work anymore, and you need some sort of uh, keyword or folder management in order to effectively manage your photos, and Aperture delivers this in spades. However, on the downside, it's an expensive application because it's priced for the pro level, and it also is very, very intensive on resources. You would think that any recent G5, say a dual processor produced in the last couple of years, will be able to run Aperture without any problem with the appropriate amount of RAM, but this is simply not the case. Aperture is capable of dealing with raw images directly without any extra processing, and also it has some very cool graphic effects tools in terms of magnification uh, and application of filters. But this graphics performance is delivered through extensive use of Core Image, the underlying graphics technology in Tiger. The problem is, to run Core Image effectively, you need a decent graphics card. And many of the dual processor G5s that were released about 12 months ago didn't have decent graphics cards in them. Consequently, these machines need to be upgraded if they want to even install Aperture. 
which is a bit of a kick in the teeth if you think you're already running a reasonably cutting-edge machine. Even a minimal graphics card upgrade won't bring all sweetness and light, because in my experience, Aperture still runs very slowly in those circumstances. Unless you really have a machine that's been produced in the last six to eight months, you're going to see relatively slow performance from Aperture. And that's a real problem. Now clearly the software is still at version 1.0, and will improve with time, as all of these things do. But the difficulty that Apple has is that there are competitors on the market that do very much the same thing that Aperture does. Adobe has released Lightroom, which is a program that comes from the same sort of design concept as Aperture. Adobe have released it as a beta, because the program isn't ready yet. And that means that at the moment it's available for free, which is a pretty good deal compared to a pro app. The performance requirements are also much lower on Lightroom. I've actually had it running on my um, PowerBook Titanium G4, which has a lowly 400MHz processor and only 8MB of video RAM. Now I'm not going to pretend that Lightroom ran incredibly fast on this machine, but it did work, and in a pinch I could probably manage on that machine. The interface isn't quite as sweet as Aperture's, but then that's probably a matter of taste more than anything else. Certainly functionally it's got a lot of the things that Aperture has in it, and the design approach is much the same. It handles raw files natively just as Aperture does. It provides non-destructive editing of your photos and very strong file management features. Of course, the product is still in beta, which means that Adobe can respond to some of the criticisms that people have made of Aperture in terms of its performance and the way it does certain things, and make sure their product doesn't make the same mistakes. So they have the advantage there. And of course, I'm sure they also have the advantage that when the product is finally ready to launch and be sold, they can bring it in at a price point below that of Aperture. So Apple's got some thinking to do around that. I recommend if you are interested in photography, you certainly have a look at Lightroom, as it's a free beta at the moment. As I say, it is a beta product. Um, it's certainly not ready for release yet. It's missing some pretty crucial tools in this release. For example, there is no crop tool currently in Lightroom. Uh, there's also no red-eye reduction tool, which uh, is something that I use very frequently. Um, but those sort of things will come, because obviously it's a beta program, and you have the opportunity to feed those things back to Adobe. So Lightroom may well have the inside track on this sort of technology going forward. It's going to be an interesting one to see. Uh, the word from Macworld was that uh, Apple weren't overly pleased with Adobe over this particular product. Even though it's a product that Adobe have been developing separately from Apple for some time, it's not a quick response to Aperture. Um, it's just a design idea whose time has come, I think. One note of caution, though, if you are a pro or semi-pro photographer, there have been quite a lot of criticism on the net from both Aperture and Lightroom in the way they handle RAW files. Certainly, people don't feel that their RAW conversion is quite as good as um, manufacturer RAW conversion software, particularly if you're using Nikon cameras, um, and that's something to bear in mind. Your mileage may vary, as people say. While in no way can you consider iPhoto OS 6 as Aperture Express or anything like that, from some of the screenshots I've seen, it looks like some of the interface improvements that were brought into Aperture have been pushed down to iPhoto, and I'm intrigued to see whether that makes iPhoto a more useful large-scale photo workflow tool. And it may well be that going forward, more features from Aperture will appear in iPhoto as uh, Apple tries to fight off the competition from Lightroom. Just finally, before I finish, I want to talk a little bit about the Monitor Audio iDeck speaker system for the iPod. 
Those of you who've heard my podcast before may remember that I interviewed Monster Audio at the Macworld Expo here in London last October. Monster Audio sent me a review unit which arrived just before Christmas, so I was able to use the holiday period to give the uh, system a really good workout. And um, while I'm writing up a full review at the moment, I just wanted to say that I'm really, really impressed with it. Monster Audio are a well-established hi-fi company here in the UK, um, and I've been aware of their speakers for probably the last 20 years or so, and um, they really have done themselves proud with this device. It truly is a hi-fi into which the iPod slots, rather than being a set of speakers for the iPod, and it sounds absolutely amazing. It comes with all the features you might expect from this class of device. It's got a remote control, it's got different sleeves to take different types of iPod, it's got a dock connector and an audio in and that sort of thing. But really, with this, it's all about the sound quality. When my review gets posted, you'll be able to read in detail about the music I've been listening to on it. But I have to say, I've never had a set of speakers on an iPod before where I've been able to literally quite easily hear the difference between a lossless audio track and a AAC encoded track. The quality of the speakers is that good that you can quite clearly hear the difference between those sort of things, even at low volume. And another thing that's good about it is if you crank it up to full volume, and it does go very loud, you get no distortion whatsoever. And that sort of performance really is an indication of a quality system. The iDeck device is definitely something that you want to look at if you're interested in making the iPod the centrepiece of your home entertainment music system. It certainly is the best one I've come across, and I think for the money could probably only be better if you're to invest in separate hi-fi amplifier and speakers and connect your iPod to it through some sort of dock. Of course, you'd have to know a fair bit about hi-fi to select the right components to achieve that, and you wouldn't have the convenience of the integration and also the remote control. So if you're an audio buff and you're looking to move away from a large cabinet full of CDs, then the iDeck is definitely worth a look in my view. So that's all from MyMac.com in Blighty for this month. Please feel free to leave positive or negative feedback at davidcohen at MyMac.com. You'll find that address in the show notes. Also a link to the music for this podcast, which is Shine from Kevin Reeves. Regular listeners to Tim and Chad's MyMac.com podcast will know that uh, Kevin was responsible for the theme that we use on there. And um, Shine's a great song. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it in the background. This is David Cohen, London Bureau Chief for MyMac.com, signing off. <laughs>